Well, good morning. It's an honor to be here today. For those of you who suffer from the misfortune of not knowing me extremely well, I'll quickly introduce myself. Um, My name is Mark Hinkle. I have the, the good fortune of being a high school English teacher at William Byrd High School here in town. Uh, And one of the things that I have the the great pleasure of doing is starting the year with freshmen every year, ninth graders, new to the building, new to high school. And there's a particular talk that I give to freshmen at the beginning of the year every year. I will spare you, but uh, it's a part of of welcoming them to high school, and it's, it's a part of helping them begin to understand how they're going to relate to their teachers differently now as adults with adults. And I try to get them to, to, to begin to understand that, that teachers have made a sacrifice to be here, and, and teachers are here to serve and to love them. And so that makes me one of the weird teachers in the building who's willing to say to the students, I love you. But then I spend the whole rest of the year trying to qualify that love. <laughs> I say to them, I love you in spite of you, not because of you. And, and so we've spent now the last four weeks here at Orchard Hills, I guess this is week four, of a week five, ser- uh, five week series discussing that very same kind of love, only on a much, much grander scale. We've been working through what's called the Romans Road. This is a series of a short little series of verses that come out of the book of Romans that simply walk a person through the gospel of Jesus Christ. These would be a great uh, five or six verses to have memorized if you ever find yourself in a position where somebody's asking you about the gospel. So three weeks ago, Sutton talked to us about Romans 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, and the idea that God is a, a wrathful God. He is angered by evil. And we shouldn't want anything less, right? We should want a God who stands up to evil. The problem is, of course, that he's then going to be angered by the evil and the sin within each of us. And so two weeks ago, Scott talked about Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and the idea that that no person is is good. None of us meet that, that perfect standard required to live in the presence of God. And then last week, finally, there was some good news. After all, that's what the gospel is supposed to be, right? Scott talked from Romans 5, verse 8, and and chapter 6, verse 23, which present the good news of Jesus Christ and the very idea that he died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead, and through him we can be saved. Now, this brings us to perhaps the most important question. What must we do to be saved? So we're going to look at Romans chapter 10 for the answer. But first, perhaps as you're turning there, I want to remind you of a story that's found in Acts chapter 16. We just spent, what, three years going through Acts here recently. So I hope I'm reminding you of a story. Barnabas and Paul have traveled to the city of Philippi as missionaries. And there were some people there who were unhappy with the message that Barnabas and Paul were delivering, and so they brought them before the Roman officials, and they accused them of disrupting the peace. 
and this was taken seriously by the Roman officials, Paul and Barnabas were beaten, they were flogged, and they were thrown into jail. And the jailer, excuse me, the jailer was given very specific instructions to keep a very close eye on these two men. And so they, the jailer put them into, into stocks. They had chains bound around their wrists and their ankles that, that would hold them into place. And as you can imagine, being held in place like that, having been flogged, there was no sleep that night. So Paul and Barnabas spend the night singing hymns and praying to God. And then the miraculous happens. You might recall there was this terrible earthquake. The very foundations of the jail were shaken. Uh, everything shifts. The chains are made loose around them. The doors are flung open. The prisoners are free to escape. When the jailer discovers this, he draws his own sword to kill himself because he's responsible for the debt owed by the jailer or by the prisoners, and this death would be a far more pleasant one than that. But before he commits the act, Paul speaks up. He says, we're all here. No one has escaped. And it's the jailer's reaction that I think is important. Immediately, the jailer comes to them, and he asks, what must I do to be saved? So apparently, he knew why Paul and Barnabas were there. If he was doing his job the way he'd been asked to, he'd surely heard all of the hymns and all of the prayers He'd seen the way they were choosing to live, even staying sacrificially there in the prison when they had the freedom to just walk away and have their freedom. And the Holy Spirit takes hold of his heart, and he asks them, what must I do to be saved? Now, the answer is almost frustrating in its simplicity. Paul says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He didn't say you need to quit your, your violent and sinful profession. He didn't say you need to quit cursing, lying, lusting, stealing, whatever the jailer's vices might have been. If I had been in Paul's shoes, I would have looked him dead in the eye. I would have said, first, I think an apology is in order. <laughs> Paul doesn't do that. Paul simply points at Christ as Lord. Believe in that, and you will be saved. And he was. And then he took Paul and Barnabas home with him, and the scriptures tell us that his whole household believed and was saved. They were saved by the power of Christ, and it happened instantaneously that very night. Now, several years later, Paul would write the book of Romans, and that's what we've been looking at uh, over the past month. So turn with me to chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 9 uh, through 13. Oh, if you're looking at the church Bibles, I got it this time. If you're looking at the church Bibles, it's page 1121. That was my best Scott imitation right there. Starting in verse 9. If you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. 
For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what must I do to be saved? Declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. It's the same message he gave the jailer. Now, verse 10 tells us that if we do this, we will be justified. Justification is a term that gets used in theological circles to mean that a person has been made righteous, pure and sinless in the eyes of God. Another way to think about this is that when God looks on the justified person, he sees Christ. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? That God could look at any one of, of us and see Christ. But that's what it means to be justified. It's outside of our very own control that we are found acceptable in the eyes of God. I'll give you an example. When I was 21, my parents adopted a baby. Now, I was the youngest in the family, so this was particularly soul-crushing. I'm working through it. When I was a senior in high school, they began the adoption process uh, with an orphanage in China, or with an adoption agency through China. It took three years, and they were finally offered a baby boy, which really surprised us because the orphanages in China, as you may know, are full of girls. But it turns out this particular child had a congenital heart defect and was not expected to live. The American adoption agency that we were working with, of course, recommended, don't accept this child. Be patient, you'll be offered another likely healthier child. We also had a member of our family who was very clear that we probably shouldn't be adopting from China at all. The baby will likely grow up to be communist. <laughs> and so... My parents, God bless them, they considered all of these possibilities, and they decided that if this was the child that, that God had in store for them, they were going to go to China and bring this child home. And when they arrived at that orphanage, and they saw him for the first time, they didn't see a sick child. They saw their son. They didn't see his culture or his genetics or his political disposition. They saw their son. And they dealt with the illness. They brought him home. They dealt with his heart condition. They dealt with raising a Chinese boy in, a, in rural America. And they did relatively well. They got to be at his wedding here in January. But when they look at him, they don't see those challenges and those expenses, they see their son. This is how God sees us. This is the meaning of justification. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin and our failures. He doesn't see our shortcomings. He sees his son. Now, there's another fun analogy for this. Since Scott isn't here today, Guinness... is a particularly dark beer. 
No, I wouldn't do that. What a terrible example to set in front of the church. I'm going to need a place to set this. Now, Guinness is known for being a particularly dark beer, but if you pour it correctly, I should have brought like a towel or something up here with me, just, just in case. If you pour it correctly, you will end up with this thick head of foam at the top. Nate, here's your thumbnail. Now, the dark beer here at the bottom, this represents our sin-stained lives. Insufficient, unacceptable in the eyes of God. The white foam here at the top, this represents what God sees when he looks at us. The clean, pure righteousness of his son. Now, there's a couple of... Let me get this... There's a couple of flaws, perhaps, with this analogy. The head on that beer can never be white enough to represent the righteousness of Christ. And furthermore, Christ doesn't look, or excuse me, God doesn't look down at the tops of our heads. Even those of us whose heads are growing increasingly white. God looks at us from every angle. He sees even the condition of our hearts. And when he does, he sees Christ. He sees his son. Even though we're still sinners, even though we're still struggling to seek his will and submit to it, and we're often failing, he looks at us and he sees his son. Now, in Romans verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, you might recall from just last week, Paul writes in verse 8 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, Shall we be saved through his life? Christ didn't wait till we quit sinning to die for us on the cross. In fact, our sins made us God's enemies, and despite that, God showed his perfect love to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been justified by his blood, and we have been saved from God's wrath through him. God is a wrathful God, and he's a God of love. Through our, though our sin separates us from him, he's willing to cleanse us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as human beings, we seem to have a great capacity for complicating things. Over the centuries, many people have debated if justification isn't too painless. Right? To become righteous in the eyes of God, shouldn't there be a more strenuous process? 
Shouldn't you have to give something up? Shouldn't there be more, more sacrifice? Shouldn't you have to quit sinning? Well, first, we already know that we can't make ourselves good enough for God. We are sinners, and the wages of sin is death. We can't earn our way into heaven. We need Christ to intercede for us. But no, this isn't too simple. First, you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. It doesn't have to think, it doesn't say that you have to think it may be a, a possibility. It doesn't even say that you have to understand it in your mind. There have been some some great defenders of the faith, like Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel or C.S. Lewis, who have written genius historical and logical arguments defending Christianity. And if you haven't read these men, you should. It'll strengthen your faith. However, even they will say that salvation is not found in understanding. Rather, you must give your heart over fully to it. There's a big difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. It's one thing to understand the story of Jesus' death and his resurrection. It's completely another to know in your heart that he suffered and conquered death to pay the penalty for your sin. And believing that in your heart is a commitment. It's no part-time thing. And then you must declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, there's a certain power in saying a word out loud. There's something about putting a declaration out there in the, in the concrete world where somebody might hear it and respond to it, hold you accountable to it, that makes a belief that much more real. Think of it like a wedding. You know in your heart that this man or this woman is the person for you. It isn't just head knowledge. You aren't just compatible. It's love. You want this person to become a part of who you are for the rest of your life. But even then, there's still one more thing to be done you have to say out loud those two little words. I do. And now you are irreversibly bound to one another for a lifetime. That's a pretty, um, pretty amazing thing to accomplish with two little words. And to declare that Jesus is Lord is so much more. A lifetime and then an eternity lived with Jesus is excitement and adventure and passion that far surpasses even marrying the love of your life. No, you don't have to give anything up in order to become a follower of Christ. You have to give everything to him your desires, your strengths, your skills, your weaknesses, your struggles, your failures. You give everything over to him. Declare that Jesus is your Lord, and then let him do as he will.
No, it's not simple. Finally, there's a similar question regarding justification that goes something like this. Once, once I'm justified, it doesn't matter how I live. I don't really have to do anything more since I'm already saved, right? And I've often thought to myself that maybe somebody would just say these words to kind of hedge their bets a little bit, get their hands on what Scott likes to call the get-out-of-hell-free card. But if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, it is absolutely going to change the way that you live. You'll serve him now, perhaps imperfectly. We're still sinners. We'll fail sometimes. And this is precisely when we're going to be most thankful that when God looks on us, he sees his son. And then we can be confident in our salvation and in the wisdom of serving him even imperfectly as he makes us more and more like Christ each day. Now next week, Scott's going to talk a little bit more about what it means to to be made more and more like Christ each day. Because that process absolutely will affect the way we live our lives here and for eternity. But there is one particular consequence of following Christ that I want to mention in closing today. In Romans 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to the authority of Christ will bring you the greatest peace you've ever known. We're all intimately familiar with our own faults and our own failures, and we all need to rest easy in the peace that only comes from the knowledge that you have been made righteous, justified in the eyes of God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've already made that commitment, there's a lot of value in being reminded today that that's where your peace comes from. It isn't from what you do or how sufficient you feel. And if you haven't already believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and declared that Jesus is the Lord of your life, you need to hear that, and you need to hear it again, and you need to hear it again, and you need to hear it again, and you need to think on that, and you need to seek the Spirit. In just a moment, we're going to have some folks come up here to the, um, the prayer rails who would love to pray with you today. And if you want to make that statement today, they are here to hear you say it out loud. Take advantage of them this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for... Um, I thank you for this morning, Lord. I thank you for 
for waking up to a beautiful day. Lord, I thank you for, for the people who are gathered here this morning and who are joining us online, and I thank you for the people that you have gathered in the church, Lord, here in Roanoke Valley and across the world. And Lord, I thank you for the purpose of that gathering, that we can hear your word, that we can feel your spirit move, and that we have the opportunity to receive justification in your eyes, Lord to be seen as Christ in your eyes, Lord. I just pray that your spirit would move across this body and across this valley and across the world today. In Jesus' name, amen.